0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. And I'm going to start this off with a coda, because this is sort of the epilogue to episodes where I riff about different aspects of the 1920s. I've just been working nonstop on Cubitooth. Every morning that I like devoted myself to a creative project, it was invariably Cubitooth, either writing the first draft or researching it. And then after I finish the first draft in October, I've been researching the stuff I need to read about in order to write the concluding chapter. And uh, now that it feels like I've pretty much reached the end of that research, I don't know, like I sit down in the morning and I could do more of it. I could do more reading, of course. I could do more note-taking. There's an endless, literally an endless amount of literature on these topics. And in the event that I were to just become an almighty sentient being, and I hoovered up all of the material about the 1920s that interests me. If I could do it in a weekend, by the end of that weekend, there would be two new books on these subjects, and there'd be a dozen new articles, and maybe another hundred magazines from the era would have been uploaded to some digital database, and I could go through those. It's an endless thing, it's an eternal project, it is an abyss of information and I could spend my entire life in it. But what comes to mind now is something that's actually co- quoted c- coincidentally in cubafruit which is a remark by an investigative journalist named john mcphee somebody asked him when he was doing investigative journalism like how do you know when you're done with this with researching a story and you can start writing it he said what happens is you start out with a certain number of questions then you do the boots on the ground thing you go around you do your interviews you do your research he says one day you sit down to do your research you ask a question and you meet yourself coming back the other way in a new experienced, informed tone, you start asking the first question all over again. He says that is the moment where you realize that's you can start setting this down on paper, at least, in your own voice. And I kind of feel when it comes to the cube-tooth research that I am meeting myself coming back the other way. My interest is now going back to the first things that I was interested in learning about. But I first went to those things from a position of total oblivion. So but now I'm coming back to them having already read several books and several articles on the subject. And I know that once I print Cubitooth, it's going to consume me in a way that's very enriching and it's very rewarding, but it's also going to be punishing. And I'm not going to do, um, there's not going to be a a single leisure activity that I engage in while editing that first draft where I'm not wondering if my time would be better spent working on that draft. There's not going to be a single outing where it's not on my mind, where I'm not and another thing is like the first draft it always you that one edits so slowly because it's not just a matter of like the prose being fucked up and messy cuz you were writing your way into the story trying to figure it out as you went along you're trying to fix the prose while simultaneously fixing the story and simultaneously learning things about the characters, correcting repetitions, and the characters change names throughout sometimes. It's a total shit show, chaotic fucking enterprise, and so when you're editing the first draft, at least for me, the pages are incredibly marked up with ink, and I go through about three pages in a three-hour sitting. But when you're writing the first draft, I will write five or maybe, if it's going well, ten pages in a sitting. And if in one of those sittings I was kind of off that day, but I wrote 10 pages, it's gonna take me three days to edit those 10 pages. And if I spend hours editing bad pages, my day is ruined. I'm gonna spend the rest of the day thinking that my future is going down the toilet, that I'll never be a worthwhile author, and this is part of the real—like, I've always wondered why the fuck people get so passionate about sports, why they allow themselves to get so passionately involved in sports, because whether I've been working at a bar, or just a patron of a bar, or I would see this in my own family, people pledge such fervent allegiance to— a sports team, and then if the sports team doesn't perform well on a beautiful Sunday when everything in your life is going right, it ruins your day. Someone tweeted recently a perfect encapsulation of this, saying something like, oh, the, the group of unpaid 19-year-olds in Charlotte didn't perform as well with a ball today, so I'm gonna g- fucking go mope in the garage. But I do the same thing with my writing. Even if I know that the first draft is a shit show, it is supposed to be a shit show. If I'm holding hundreds of pages of shit show manuscript, that's a good sign. It means I got the story out of my head. And now the task is to clean it up. But speaking of that, the way the ugly ways in which a big writing project can ensnare you, to, now is a good, good enough time to talk about Cormac McCarthy's latest release, which is a two-volume novel. The volumes are called respectively *The Passenger* and *Stella Morris*. For the past 16 years, everyone who is a big fan of Cormac McCarthy, everyone who has been on the Cormac McCarthy uh, forums, whether on Reddit or the website has known about this big novel that he's been working on for, like, 40 years called The Passenger. Nobody knew what it was about except that it explored, like, elements of physics and mathematics, which have always been serious fascinations for Cormac McCarthy, but he's never addressed them or explored them in a very direct way with his books. So everyone was wondering what this was, and then in 2015, it was announced that The Passenger was going to be released by his publisher Knopf. And then... Nothing happened. There was no article about the postponement. Nobody had any idea what was going on, and the speculation became like, he's just once, he's probably unsure of this, and he's going to let it be published posthumously. Well, it turns out, um, from what I've gleaned, I don't know if this is entirely the case, but it seems that Cormac McCarthy submitted a pretty gigantic novel to his publisher, and then people on the editorial team at Knopf started having... Very earnest debates about whether it should be published as one volume or two volumes because it is about two, like, sort of converging and diverging narratives involving a brother and a sister. And they made ultimately what seems to be the right decision of releasing it in two volumes, two months apart. The first one, The Passenger, is really the meaty one that's the one where, like, there's a storyline, and then the second novel stella Morris. it has the format of just a law a four-session dialogue between a schizophrenic brilliant a genius young woman and her therapist and that young woman is the sister the incestuously romanced sister of the main character from the passenger her brother in that book is a guy named bobby western and the fact that his last name is western seems like a cringy cormac mccarthy thing but the book is just weird it's really bizarre and it's obviously trying to emulate certain things that james joyce tried to do with finnegan's wake if you're not familiar with finnegan's wake it's a gigantic novel that james joyce spent 17 years writing and the entire book is written in puns almost nobody reads it many people find it absolutely impenetrable yours and yours truly included but the reason it is so dense and difficult to get into is because the entire story is is the main character's dream and the main character is a guy named Humphrey Earwicker, and Humphrey is obviously haunted by some sort of sexual trauma. And in the course of Finnegan's Wake... This long dream that he's having, you would never learn exactly what that trauma is. But Joyce, playing little linguistic games, he gives you clues. So, for instance, we, we are basically told explicitly that he is suffering from a sexual trauma that is so bad, it cannot even be put into words. But also, you have to consider that this book really is not made up of real words. But also, throughout the book, Earwicker is kind of plagued by bugs, by insects. And if you take the word insect and you play with the letters, just like he is playing with the letters of every other word, you get the word incest. And so once you realize that his long dream, also maybe a nightmare, is some attempt to grapple with the guilt or the shame or the pain of some incestuous experience, that sheds a new light on the book. And In the same way in the passenger you once you realize that this book is about a tormented incestuous relationship at least to some degree you start to understand the book in a different way there are insects in this book there's a long scene where bobby western is talking to someone who is over the course of their conversation firing bullets at a bunch of insects in his trailer i'm actually kind of not sure once you reach the end of the passenger it gets darker and darker and weirder and weirder and then it leads you into reading Stella Maris, which are these long therapy sessions that his d- dead sister was having before she committed suicide, and I think when I reached the end of Stella Maris, it made me think that in in the Passenger, he is sleeping the whole time; that he, the entire, the action, all of the book's action is taking place in a coma, and of course it drives you right back to the Passenger, and now. From page one, The Passenger reads like a different book. It is a wheel, it is a cycle, it keeps flowing into itself, and famously, Finnegan's Wake begins mid-sentence, and it ends mid-sentence. And if you want to complete the sentence, on the final sentence on the last page of Finnegan's Wake, it is completed on the first page of Finnegan's Wake. It is a constant ring and circles are a motif throughout The Passenger, and loops are a motif, and, and snakes and rings, namely the Ouroboros, the symbol of the snake eating its tail. When I first read the two novels back-to-back, or the two volumes of the same novel, however you want to look at it, I thought The Passenger was bizarre. Bizarre to the point that I was like, I'm not sure I like this. And then I read Stella Maris, and I hated it. But it cast such a light, such—it was so illuminating about the material and The Passenger, that when I went back to The Passenger, after reading Stella Morris, it was 10 times better. I was amazed by it. Does it work as a novel? Absolutely not. I don't know, man. It's really impressive. I'm really dazzled by it, and I keep going back to it. And this week, since Stella Morris just came out, I got the audiobook, with my monthly credit from Audible, and listening to the dialogue. The whole book is just a dialogue. And hearing it performed by two actors, I fucking love that too. But I love these two volumes in a deep in, in a deep way that I, w- like, I, I just wouldn't recommend them to anybody. But I don't know. My voice is wearing out. I'm going to do another episode like a coda about what this is doing to my long-standing relationship with Cormac McCarthy's work, which was so formative. And now I think I might kind of be growing out of it. And I don't know if it's for a lack of appreciation of the work itself, or if I'm coming to see sort of the seams and the paint. There's also the shadow of these two videos that just appeared on YouTube, and we could talk about that in the coming episode. Thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more of it, whether exclusive content, you can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com forward slash thousandmovieproject. Again, thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.